This is Just the Right Book, and I am Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. I hope to bring to you some of the very best nonfiction authors, conversations you want to hear about the books you want to read. Will Haskell burst onto the state political scene at the age of 22 in November of 2018 with a major upset of Republican Senator Tony Boucher. Did I say her name right? Uh, it's Boucher, actually. Boucher, thank you. No worries. In a once heavily Republican district in lower Fairfield County, Connecticut. Republicans had held the seat since the 1970s, and Senator Boucher had been in office longer than Will Haskell had been alive. And not necessarily what he would have imagined would really happen when he started his campaign out of his dorm room at Georgetown. He tells the story of why he did it, how he got elected, and the reality of being a legislator in his book, 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker. Will, I loved reading about how intrepid you were in running your campaign and fascinated by your frank take on the legislative process. Senator Haskell, welcome to Just the Right Book. Roxanne, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to uh, to be here with you tonight. Well, it's it's um, it's a great pleasure. So here's here's the thing that was striking. So you're at Georgetown. You're like a normal Georgetown kid. Um, why did you run? And did you even imagine you would win, or was this sort of a? Did you at the outset did you think of this as sort of an exercise? I I never thought I was going to win. the The theme of this book is honesty, and I'll be totally honest tonight. I grew up not knowing that I had a state senator. Certainly not knowing <laughs> who my state senator. Oh, good was. move, Will. Yeah. So the answer to your question as to why I decided to run, what what made me make this crazy leap of faith? Frankly, it was a series of of uh, realizations. And the first was President Trump's victory that really felt like a punch in the gut. Mm. Uh, I had grown up and come of age during the Obama era when progress felt inevitable. We, we often disagreed about the pace of that progress, but it felt like our country was moving in the right direction. And then all of a sudden to wake up one day and have a president of the United States promising to bring us backwards, to make America great again, uh, that was the first moment where I realized, oh, my God, I can't just sit back and wait to get involved in politics one day. This is urgent. I've got to do mm-hmm. something now. I want to get involved at the state and local level. And then I did some research and I found out that my state senator was somebody who I really disagreed with, somebody who, as you said, had been in office for longer <laughs> yeah. than I'd been alive. And then the final realization, maybe the light bulb moment, was realizing that nobody else was going to run against her. Very often in down ballot races like this one, Incumbents go unchallenged. And whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I just think that's bad for democracy. You mentioned the word exercise. It's a good exercise for every incumbent's feet to be held to the fire, for us to campaign for re-election, to defend our voting records. So I didn't think that winning was probable, but I thought it was possible. And overall, I thought it was good for democracy to have a, a an incumbent be forced to defend her record. Yeah. You know, and I want to come back to incumbents, the the margin of credit belongs to the incumbents. I think that's true on the state level and it's true on the federal level. And, and we'll get back to that. But one of the things that I hadn't realized that created a lower than typical bar for you to run for office are the Connecticut finance rules. So explain that to our audience and, and, and then normalize for us Does that exist in other states? Are we an outlier? Because that was a big bonanza. It was it was the only reason I could afford to run for office. I couldn't have ever afforded to wage a campaign and to hire my college roommate to be my campaign manager, to have a dorm room fundraiser. (laughs) Like none of this would have been possible in most states across the country, because generally speaking, we've got a political system that gives tremendous advantages to those who are independently wealthy and can pour millions of dollars of their own money into campaign coffers or, frankly, those who have really wealthy and well-connected friends. And I was 21 years old, sitting in a college dorm, and had neither of those things. Connecticut is so unique. We have, as you mentioned, publicly financed elections. So I had to raise $15,000. I had to get 300 individual donors from my district. 
That was hard, but it wasn't insurmountable. Jack yeah. and I spent our spring break doing just that. While all our friends went partying and beaches in Florida, we came back to Connecticut and hosted but a whole bunch of fundraisers. that made your mom happy. Yeah. I'd be happy if my son weren't doing that. <laughs> she was she was pretty happy, I have to say, um, that we were that we were local. But only six other states across the country have publicly financed uh, state legislative races. Really, and. Uh, one thing that I hope is a takeaway from this book is that there are a lot of barriers that keep young people um, away from the voting booth and keep young people from getting their name on the ballot. And this is one of them. And if more states, red states and blue states, decide that they're going to embrace they're going to embrace publicly financed elections, I think that we're going to start to see a little bit more of a representative democracy. We're going to start to see more young people. We're going to start to see more working class people, uh, more people of color, more women. We're going to start to see elected officials who actually look like the people that they're mm. charged with representing, because that's not at all what we have right now. <laughs> so what goes on in those other states? If you were Will Haskell, you were a junior at Georgetown when this started or a senior? I was a junior when I started to think about running. I was a senior when I launched my campaign. And in any other state, I'd have to raise... I mean, yeah. How much would you have to raise? I, I I talk about this all the time when I go to conferences with other state legislators. I love asking folks what their campaigns cost because in Pennsylvania and New York, those campaigns can cost over a million dollars. Some of them can cost over for state five million dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much money is poured into these races, and it's not just fundraising that the candidate does. It's also super PACs. It's independent expenditure committees. It's it's all of these things that. I didn't have to deal with in Connecticut, right? I raised my money. I asked people for checks. And then I could no longer ask them for any money. I couldn't spend a cent more. And I got to spend all of my time asking people for votes. And that's so, so great. So, so, Will, the the amount you get from the state is what, 100000 It's about 100000 And you keep the 15000 you raised. So your campaign in total has $115,000. And the magic, Roxanne, is that the same is true of your opponent. So, so nobody spends more than that money. You can't spend a cent more. Even if you're a millionaire or even if you're like me, didn't have a savings account, it doesn't matter. You're not spending a cent more than one, about, one, about $115,000. I mean, that's amazing all by itself. And we could get into how annoying that is that there's not campaign finance reform in general, but we we might not um, even get uh, to that. But so you put together a team, you you buttonhole your roommate Jack, <laughs> who's also never run a campaign. True. You start reaching out to people like Jonathan Steinberg, who's the Connecticut rep from your hometown, Westport, in your district. There are seven towns in your district as a Senate district. Then your girlfriend's mother, (laughs) and there was somebody else. Was it uh, Rudy Marconi? Yeah. Rudy Rudy Marconi. So why do you think these people were so helpful? Oh, that's such a a fun question. It it, it was... If I'm being totally honest, it was hard to recruit a campaign team because folks thought that this was crazy, right? Yeah. The reason that, and I love her to death, but the reason that uh, my girlfriend's mother became my treasurer is that nobody else was willing to uh, to spend the hours and hours that are necessary on campaign filings. They just didn't think that our campaign was serious. They didn't think that we had a shot. I was so lucky that there were a handful of people who believed um, – that it was possible. And I have to say, I talk a lot in this book about how our campaign was driven by young people, how we had interns who yeah. were 15 and 16 and 17 years old. who come to the office in the afternoon. Yeah, they made politics an extracurricular activity. They would they would come in after school and lick envelopes and they brought in beanbag chairs and they brought their dogs and it was like a fun social environment. But I also have to be super honest and transparent about the fact that the campaign wouldn't have gotten off the ground without some really early supporters who were much older, folks from my parents' generation or even mm-hmm. my grandparents' generation, who believed in that that long overdue promise from President Kennedy that the torch should be passed to the next generation. That really hasn't happened yet, but there are folks who are eager to see the next generation of Americans step off of the sidelines, step into the ballot box, and also get their name on the ballot. So people like Jonathan, people like Rudy, people like Marge, my my girlfriend, my now fiance's uh, mother, they they believed in this in the chance in that, the system, yeah, in the in system. the idea, totally in the in the in the notion that 
young people's young people should have a seat at every table where decisions are made because whether we're talking about town hall or whether we're talking about the state legislature or Congress, policymakers sit around every day and decide what the next 20, 50, 100 years of American life will look like. And they'll be dead. And they usually don't do <laughs> yeah, the, the more polite way. <laughs> the way I usually say it is they do so without without asking for input from the stakeholders in that future. And I think that that's a real problem. So one of the things I want to bring up from your uh, running was that you literally knocked on doors. So there were two things striking to me about that, and a couple of which uh, I'm curious what the experience was like. One is I'm shocked people answer their doors. Two is it reminded me, and you talk about this in the book a little bit, that, you know, you, this is not a spoiler alert, you ended up winning and you attribute your winning to having a good team, working hard, having some good luck, and a certain amount of privilege. And one of the things I thought about when you're knocking on the door, if you were a black man running and they were knocking on doors in Wilton, Connecticut, or Ridgefield, Connecticut, people wouldn't answer the door. I'm speculating that people yeah. wouldn't answer the door. And maybe they didn't answer the door for you. But how did you, was that like current thinking to go knocking on doors? Did people answer the doors? What did you learn when they answered the door? And, and for our listeners who don't know Connecticut, your district includes a lot of houses. It's not like, you know... Ozzy and Harriet and the houses are close together. They're <laughs> no, like it's the opposite, far right? Apart. My, my district is infamous for four-acre zoning, you know? I mean, it, so, so yeah, you had a lot of time to think in between doors and wonder, how could that have gone better? What am I going to say next time around? So that was a lot of questions about yeah. the knocking on doors, but I was fascinated by that. So Yeah, let me dig into yeah. to some of those. I, I, there's so much to unpack there. A lot of this book is about knocking on doors because that was how I spent most of my time in the campaign. And there are some who think that door knocking is outdated, that there are more efficient ways to to meet with voters, meet voters where they are on social media. But here's the thing. Here's my defense of door knocking. Not only is it great for campaigns in terms of meeting people who are at home, who are sometimes apolitical, who aren't going to be tuning into any political ads. Who don't know there's a state senator. Yeah, who, who <laughs> voted every four years and not every two years or every year. Yeah. Um, but it's also a great way for a candidate to learn about the district and the people that they're hoping to represent. Mm -hmm. So at every door, I would ask the same question. I would introduce myself very briefly, and then I would say, hey, what's the most important issue for you? And sometimes I heard about their frustration with President Trump, and sometimes I heard about their frustration with the pothole at the end of their driveway. And that's a municipal issue and a national issue, and the state government falls somewhere in between. But very often, I would hear bits and pieces about how the state government could better serve them. And I walked away with a lot of ideas, ideas that became bills and bills that became laws. So Mm -hmm. not only is it one of the last frontiers to meet the apolitical, uh, it's also an opportunity to learn from your future constituents in a way that putting up a billboard or putting up an ad on Facebook, it doesn't teach you about the folks you're, you're supposed to represent. That being said, yeah, there are some, cr- not everybody answers the door to your point. My, yeah. <laughs> Katie, my fiance, hits the floor whenever somebody knocks on her door. And uh, there's, this book yeah. hopefully will make people laugh. There's some funny things that happen. Dogs chase you out of uh, down long driveways. One woman answered the door completely in the nude. I think that she was maybe, maybe expecting her husband. <laughs> not me, anyways. Or, or somebody. Or somebody. <laughs> um, one day I knocked on a door and uh, I was I was dressed in black, not intentionally. I was just wearing a suit or something. And it was a shiva and they thought that I was a guest oh, of the shiva. Oh, attending the shiva. Yeah. And it was incredibly awkward. I had to explain that, no, I was I was not there for the shiva, but then they invited me in anyways. I mean, so people who don't know you in, in the Jewish religion, you uh, observe shiva for one to seven days um, after someone is uh, died. Exactly. It, it, it was it was it's sort of like, you know, crashing a funeral almost. It was yeah. super awkward. Cl- but <laughs> almost worse. Yeah, exactly. But I want to close on something you said that's so important, which is that, yeah, we worked really hard and we benefited from good luck and we had a great team. But we can't ignore the fact that uh, I benefited tremendously from the fact that I was a young white dude and a lot of people probably saw me and thought that I reminded them of their son or their grandson yeah. and gave me the benefit of the doubt. And I didn't, I was sometimes nervous door knocking, but very, very rarely. And that's not true for candidates of color, and it's not true for a lot of women. 
Um, yeah. I think about my friend Stephanie Thomas. I think she wouldn't mind my saying that whenever she went out door knocking, she would bring a friend or a volunteer. Um, yeah. She's a, a woman of color, and she was running in many of the same suburbs that I was and faced a, a level of danger that I just didn't have to think about. Right? I could go out for six hours and knock on doors by myself. I didn't have to recruit somebody to join me. So every time Stephanie yeah. wanted to do that, a little bit more work was required. And did you run into um, somebody in New Canaan who or somebody who thought they were in your district and they weren't, and you told them to vote for Alex Casey, Cassie? Yeah, Cassie, exactly right. And he said, no chick? Right, it was this... <laughs> Un- it's like, it, what? It was a totally shocking moment where I said, hey, I hope you'll vote for this other candidate. You know, he thought he was in my precinct. It turns out he was in the other one. And I said, oh, vote for my friend. Her name is Alex. She's great. And he, he said very sternly, but but unabashedly, no checks. And it, it, it was a, one of those light bulb moments for me where I realized, OK, some people are voting for me because they agree with me and they like my message. But also, I'm benefiting from a lot of folks who just simply... Yeah. Give men the benefit of the doubt and give white people the benefit of the doubt. And that's not true for other candidates on the ballot. Yeah. So, Will, when I think about it, so our listeners um, can't see you and you were 22. Now you're 25 and you're very young looking. <laughs> you're, you're you know, not only are you young, you're, you are young looking. So you got advice um from uh what was her name oh there was somebody working on your video and they told you about the like grid that you needed oh yeah the yeah you know the box. messaging yeah uh, the four boxes mm-hmm. about who you are who your opponent how your opponent defines you what's your opponent going to say about you what's their opponent going to say about uh, themselves and you you say in the book that you didn't have an aha moment. You had a series of huh moments. So how did you really know when you had to put together this message board? How'd you come up with who are you and what we're gonna what what was as Jonathan Steinberg said to you, well, what's your platform gonna be? How'd you even start to figure that out? Yeah, a, a huge challenge of of deciding to run for office is figuring out how your own story mixes and and sort of coincides with the story you're trying to tell and the public policy that uh, you're trying to pass. So President Obama said, if you're disappointed in your elected officials, grab a clipboard, get some signatures and run for office yourself. That resonated with me. Mm-hmm. But how do you actually go about do it. doing it? Right. That's part of why I wrote this book. Here's how to actually get your name on the ballot. But then there's the question of, OK, what do I want to say now that I'm at now that I'm on the ballot? What is what's going to be the core sort of focus of my campaign? And I'll say this, Roxanne, I was so nervous about being a young person running for office. Yeah. I thought that it was a real liability. Like you said, I was 22, but I looked 12 and I knock on people's door. Yeah. And the f- I didn't want to say <laughs> that, but I'm going to go with that. <laughs> the, the very first thing people want to know is how old I am. And I would always try to change the topic. I would pivot. I would say, well, I'm, I'm 22, but here's my plan to address P- Connecticut's pension crisis. Here's how I'm going to speed up the trains on Metro North. And, and you're a learner. I mean, you, it's clear in the book that you made it your business to ask questions, not be afraid to ask questions, not be afraid to say that you didn't understand something. So and that's a big help. It, it helps. But frankly, what I learned more than any one policy issue is that um, I I can't avoid talking about my youth. So I might as well embrace it. I might yeah. as well talk about the fact that there aren't very many Gen Z policymakers and how that's a problem. I might as well talk about the fact that central to Connecticut's economic challenges are the fact that young people aren't excited about living here. We do such a good they job. They leave. Right. We do an amazing job of educating them, right? Our K-12 through schools, some of them are the best in the country. We've got amazing higher ed institutions from Yale to Wesleyan but to Conn College to UConn to Norwalk Community College. They, The vast majority pick up and get their pick up right after they get their degree and they start their family or they start their small business or they start their career somewhere else. And here I was coming home to Connecticut. And I thought that that gave me a perspective on what other young people are looking for when they when they make that decision. So I started to talk about my age differently. I started to highlight it and and be really proud of the fact that I was 22 and say that, yeah, I don't know what it's like to buy a home or start a small business or to care for my parents when they're in declining health. When when my colleagues bring those experiences to the table, I'm going to do way more listening than talking. Yeah. But when we talk about uh, participating in school shooter drills, when we talk about- They what, don't know that. Right. When we talk about what consent looks like and doesn't look like on Friday night on a college campus, when we talk about- 
thinking about climate change not as an academic problem, but as something that's going to impact our ability to lead happy and yeah. healthy lives. That, those are experiences that my generation uniquely has and a voice that we can bring to the table that's different. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. I call those fun expected moments, and I get those from FunJet Vacations. FunJet Vacations offers vacation packages to your favorite destinations, such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. Right now, you can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself at Dreams Resorts and Spas by AMR Collection at FunJet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. So you win, and then one, uh, you know, we didn't mention, which must have been sort of surreal, that somewhere in your campaign you get a call from somebody saying Obama endorses you. You're like— That had to be one of the crazier days yeah, of my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. now— it w- But I want to talk about your being a state senator because I found that— I pay attention to what goes on in Hartford— I've known people that have been in the legislature, but I was surprised because you added some details that I don't think I was familiar with. So I want to start with Vin. (laughs) So you talk about Vin, who's the chief of staff of the Senate Democratic Caucus. And um, I have three questions about him. Who is he? Because he seemed pretty powerful. He is. What did he tell you? And why on earth does he make more than the governor? <laughs> so it's Vin is an amazing guy. I've learned a ton from him. He is the the right-hand man to the Senate president. And he's been in this this job for a long time. So he really knows how to how to pass a law. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is I wanted to I didn't want to write a long campaign speech. I'm sure you've read other books by politicians that are like campaign manifestos. Yeah, (laughs) those are not fun to read, and I can't imagine they're fun to write. I wanted to give people a peek behind the curtain at the good, the bad, the ugly, and sometimes the funny of what it's like to actually write bills and pass laws. Yeah. Vin is a great example of one of those characters that uh, the outside world doesn't always get to see, but somebody who's really instrumental has had a long career in passing hugely important bills. Free community college, something that I was so proud of. It wouldn't have happened without Vin's support and mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, paid family and medical leaves, uh, that, which is now available in Connecticut, the most inclusive and generous paid family leave in the country. So important for young parents, so important for those who are caring for a sick loved one. Um, that happens because of folks behind the scenes who, who understand what it looks like to get it passed. Yeah, who understand the mechanics, how to how to use lobbyists to your advantage, how to, um, you know, at exactly the right moment, uh, make sure that the vote is called so that uh, we're able to, you know, avoid a lengthy filibuster. There's just a million little legislative mechanics with which I was wholly unfamiliar and I had a lot to learn. By the way, big things like how to pass a bill, but also little things. I remember... Here in the city of New Haven, uh, Vin took me out for a drink right uh, the same week I was sworn in, and he said, "Will, you're holding your cigar like it's a joint." So <laughs> I never, I never smoked a cigar before. There's all sorts of things that Vin taught me. I guess you smoked a joint. Well, no comment on that one. Right. But <laughs> um, but. Why does he make more than the governor? Oh, just because he's been there a long time. Uh, you know the. I mean, that feels kind of crazy. I'm sure Vin's a good guy. I don't know him. And by the way, neither of them make a crazy salary. Yeah, I right? understand. It's all public yeah. service. But uh, when you're in the capital long enough, just as a as a matter of seniority, you start to you know earn rack high. up the years. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, Will, you're 22. You. You had only been to the state capitol once before on a little visit with your dad. Yeah. Now you're um, uh, take office. 
Now, you have to hire staff. Like, how do you even, like, how many people did you have to hire? I was worried nobody wanted to work for a 22-year-old. Yeah, I would worry about that, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. I was lucky. I hired uh, Alex Romanowitz, who was my legislative aide, and he'd worked for a bunch of senators before me. So he knew how the building worked, and that was so valuable. As, so why as... did he go to work for you, do you think? I'd have to ask him, but I think that he was excited about somebody doing it. He was curious. Differently, right? <laughs> like, I knew I needed to learn how this place worked, but I also knew that I wanted to shake it up just a little bit. I didn't want to be like every other senator who he'd worked for previously. Um, yeah. And you weren't a wise guy. No, not at all. I was. I, I spent more time listening than talking, but also I really valued... Um, some of the way, some of the things I'd learned on the campaign trail about how to reach voters and get feedback from them, I wanted to keep doing now that I was in office. So I held um, I, hundreds of town hall meetings. And when COVID prevented us from having them in person, we did telephone town hall meetings. We and get even more attendance, I bet. Uh, yeah. Hundreds of people would tune in. Um, we get a lot of ideas for bills from Instagram. I put polls out there saying, how would you vote on this bill? So trying to just bring kind of a, a 21st century approach to legislating, it's something that probably also excites Alex. If he were here, I think he would say that that's part of the reason yeah, that he and I work it was well another together. Way, but, he's also a young guy. But Oh, he is. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably 30, 31. Yeah. But well, it's young. That's young in politics for sure. So, Will... This was one of the things that surprised me. So you're new to the state Senate. State Senate doesn't have that many people, right? It's 36. 36. And you have to be on five committees and chair one? Yeah, it's it's chaos. People should go and visit the state capitol I mean, just felt- to see how these— I had the the impression from the outside that laws are written by studious PhDs who know everything about every issue. And the the reality is so far from that, right? We are sitting in a judiciary committee debating gun violence prevention bills. But at the same time, on my computer, I'm watching what's happening in the transportation committee where they're deciding whether or not tolls are going to be put on our highways. And at the same time, in my ear and my headphones, I'm listening to what's happening in the environment committee where we're deciding whether or not to ban plastic bags. And you're just trying to make sure you don't miss any votes. Um, you, you run for the legislature because you care deeply about five, six or seven things. And then you're asked to vote on 400, 500, 600 bills. I mean, you voted on 600 bills. Yeah, I think in the first session we ended up, uh, yeah, we we, on the Senate floor cast uh, just over 400 votes, and that doesn't even count all the committee bills, all the amendments that come up. So you're constantly just trying to keep your head afloat. And, And part of the reason I wrote this book is that I want other people who maybe feel like they're not qualified, that they don't know everything about every issue, um, to realize that they could do this too. We, it's not brain surgery. You no, can learn it. You can absolutely. So long as you're ready to listen and roll up your yeah. sleeves, you could be an elected official. And actually, uh, politics is filled. I with, don't know if I'm comforted or alarmed. Yeah. By <laughs> I think that there's something comforting about the fact that politics is filled with ordinary people, right? If you watch MSNBC, you think that um, you know. Uh, Barack Obama walks on water. And if you watch Fox, you think that Nancy Pelosi eats children for breakfast. And the truth is somewhere in between, right? Pol- politicians are are fallible, just like anybody else. Yeah, but, you know, and I guess, um, you know, I, I guess part of it is, like, if I think about it, it w- I want to think that our elected officials are smarter than I am. Because I know how much I... I do wrong and <laughs> and get wrong and think about incorrectly. So I think it's that idea. You know, of course, they're normal people. These are not, you know, every once in a while you're going to get someone that's extraordinary yeah. who understands the political process and has a ethical vision of making the country better and not conflicted loyalties. But for the most part, uh, you know, I worry they are like me. <laughs> you know, that would well, that would be alarming. <laughs> you mentioned a second ago, you know, how often you or I, or I get it wrong. And politicians inevitably are going to get it wrong, right? Yeah. That's the, You hope that we get it right more often than we get it wrong. But I do just want to say something kind of a – I want to dig into the, the word or the idea of wrong because when we're campaigning – we speak in black and white rhetoric, right? Like there is a yeah. right way to vote and a wrong way to vote. And I'm the right candidate and my opponent is wrong. And governing, I found, involves navigating a much more gray and murky water. It's it's realizing that 
every vote you cast has downsides. There are pluses and minuses to each and every issue. And every once in a while, there's a, a day of black and white, right? Like gun violence prevention for me, that's not a hard one. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't subscribe to a lot of the cons. But there. talk about that bill. One of the bills that I thought was interesting that you talked about that um, uh, made this made this clearer to me is it was a bill by um, Senator Kathy Austin. Austin. And uh, explain the bill and explain how you ended up voting, even though it it left out uh, the EMT workers. Yeah, so I spent Memorial Day uh, weekend marching in a whole, as every politician does, marching in parades. And in my hometown of Westport, I happened to be marching next to a bunch of EMT workers and volunteers. And they told me about how they see some really challenging things on the job. They see people take their final breaths in the back of an ambulance. Some of them were the first to rush in to Sandy Hook after that tragedy. Yeah. And that trauma stays with them after the job. It impacts their personal and professional life. And we in this country talk a lot about post-traumatic stress for those who served our country abroad, as we should. But we ignore the post-traumatic stress that impacts the folks in our community who serve in uniform, who run towards a problem when the rest of us run away from it. Mm-hmm. So when I, when later, a few months later in Hartford, we had a bill that would expand post-traumatic stress protections to first responders. And as I was on the, sitting at my desk digging through the bill, I realized that it covered police officers and firefighters, but not EMTs. And that was a real struggle for me because I had promised these folks in marching with them that I was going to fight for their inclusion. And uh, I, I honestly, Roxanne, I didn't know how to vote. I, mm-hmm. I To vote no would be wrong because clearly first responders like firefighters and police officers deserve these protections. But to vote yes would felt to me like kicking sand in the face of the EMT workers who I'd gotten to know. So I stepped out into the hall uh, and I called a constituent who's an EMT, a guy who I'd marched with, and, you know, he expressed his real frustration. And then I asked him very honestly how he would vote. And he told me that, you know, he took a long pause and he said, I guess I would vote yes and I'd fight to include us in the future. And that's what I did. But it didn't feel great. It wasn't like this glorious moment where we patted ourselves on the back. Um, But it happens all the time, right? Every day. And then we came back the next year to to Senator Austin's credit. We returned and we expanded that bill for EMT workers. And that's now the law of the land. But progress is slow and it doesn't always feel great. And uh, for all the, the talk of right and wrong, the truth is, I think most votes fall somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And, you know, before we move on to um, uh, the future, uh, because we're already um, we've already been talking for a bit. But there was one paragraph that I thought was so interesting about the challenge of really being a state rep. Mm -hmm. Um, so we didn't talk about the title of your book, but it's your 100,000 constituents. Exactly. Um, first job out of college. So they were all my first bosses. Yeah. Um, an unruly group, as, <laughs> as will be clear uh, in this paragraph. Keeping in touch with my 100,000 constituents was another source of stress as I la- learned the ropes in Hartford. Every voter will tell you they want a legislator who gets stuff done, but what most of them really want is a legislator who is accessible and omnipresent in the district. Being an effective legislator and spending time in the district aren't necessarily complementary roles. In fact, they can work against each other, and this was one of your constituents um, in Ridgefield, an elderly woman, probably someone like me. (laughs) Where have you been, she asked. You used to be in Ridgefield all the time. I never see you anymore. You say, I've been in Hartford, proud of the work I was doing. I told her about some of the bills that I had proposed. We didn't elect you to spend time in Hartford, she scoffed. We want you to spend time in Ridgefield. So one of the things, Connecticut, you're a legislator. It's a part-time job. It pays $28,000 or $30,000 a year. Sounds like you work all the time because you're you're doing all these bills, you're then going to the district, you're marching in parades, you're doing town halls. So, A, why would anybody do it? And did you or do you feel like the system actually 
works. I mean, we could talk particularly about Connecticut, but that's less important. Mm -hmm. How many states have part-time legislatures? Most. Connecticut, we pay our state legislators 28,000 a year, as you said, and uh, we rank 20th. So we're not even among the worst half, (laughs) right? Isn't that astonishing? Um, We we rank 20th in terms of legislator pay. California pays like 90,000. New Mexico pays nothing. And it's a real problem, right? Across the country, we say to people, hey, you should run for office. But how is that possible for somebody who's trying to put food on the table for their kids or trying to pay their utility bills, right? We we want a democracy and, and a government that is representative of all types of people. But one of the reasons that we see so many wealthy people in office, it's not just the campaign finance rules that we were talking about earlier. It's it, the pay. It's the pay. At it, the state level. Right. Ab- absolutely. So- it's not a sexy thing to say that we should pay our politicians more, right? Everybody hates yeah. politicians, and no one will talk about this in Hartford because the the nasty campaign flyer writes itself. You know, we're all grateful to serve, and we all take that responsibility seriously. But let's be honest about the fact that we're excluding a huge percentage of Americans from running for office when the pay is only 28000 a year. So what's the solution? The solution is to pay politicians a a more reasonable wage. Nobody should go into this business to get rich, but you also – you shouldn't have to be independently wealthy. You shouldn't have to do what we have in Connecticut and many legislatures have across the country, which is uh, rely on outside work. I've got a lot of colleagues, Democrats and Republicans, who end up working for uh, a union or a utility company that very often has issues come before the legislature. And that can sounds um, a little like conflict of interest, <laughs> right? It, it's it either creates a conflict of interest or, as detrimentally, an appearance of a conflict of interest. And the solution for you know rooting out corruption, but also be building a more inclusive government, is just to pay people a living wage. And uh, I think my colleague Norm Needleman, who uh, represents uh, Essex and that area out in Connecticut, says it best. Norm doesn't take a salary. He's one of those fo- guys who, yeah, who came in. Yeah, he is in. wealthy. Right. He, came, he had a successful career in the private sector and he made a turn towards public service. And that's wonderful. But he is brave enough to talk about why we need to pay legislators more. And he says, you get what you pay for. <laughs> and I think that's true. Well, here's the thing that, uh, you know, you uh, think about or, or, or I thought about. So we're now seeing on any number of issues that there are those who um, feel strongly and remind us that we're a republic and therefore the power, there's a lot of power invested in the states. And you talk about in the book, and you know we've all read it in the news, that Democrats have paid a lot of attention to national macro issues while Republicans are paying attention to state races. And something like 30, how many, 30-something states are controlled legislative and governor's offices by Republicans? I don't have that number at my fingertips, but I know that since President Obama took office, we've lost more than 900 state legislative races. And in the last election, in the 2020 election, Republican state legislative candidates were spending five times more than their Democratic counterparts. We are being outspent nationally five to one. This isn't a problem in Connecticut because of our clean financing laws. But nationally, the Republicans are pouring way more money into down-ballot races. So why aren't Democrats doing that? I mean, did did the Republicans figure something out that the Democrats didn't? Uh, totally. Uh, this is changing, finally, and, and thankfully. Uh, is it? It's kind of late. It's it's really late. We've got groups like the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee out of D.C. We've got groups like Run for Something, which is recruiting young, diverse, progressive candidates to run for office at the state and local level. Um, but we we are up against a, a mountain of well-funded Republican super PACs that invest in down-ballot races. And yeah, what they figured out is that a lot of the things we care about, whether it's the quality of the or roads, state issues. right? The quality of the roads we drive on, the quality of the public schools that your kids go to, uh, the quality, the, the cleanliness of the air that you breathe and the water that you drink, those are decided at the state level. And gun control, gun, abortion, totally. And and frankly, states are playing an ever increasing role because Washington used to get things done, but these days they're they're spending while they're talking about problems, states are actually solving them. So. 
you know, we're all sort of wringing our hands about the Build Back Better Act. And we saw senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema take out free college, take out paid leave from President Biden's agenda. Well, here in Connecticut, we're getting that done. Uh, free college has, our free college program has already helped thousands of students get a degree. Our paid family and medical leave gives 12 weeks guaranteed paid leave for every Connecticut resident starting this month. So uh, one of the things I'm asking people in this book is even if they don't decide to run for office, learn who your state senator is. Uh, I don't say it judgmentally because as I already confessed, I didn't, I spent most of my life not knowing who my state senator was, but there's a real argument for you know, redirecting even a fraction of all of the advocacy and the the anxiety that we direct towards Washington, D.C. If to we, the state. Yeah. If we just pick up the phone and call our state legislators, it is probably going to be much more impactful uh, in our community. You know, Will, among the messages that I liked um, in the book was that, that I think we, you know, we often feel like we have no control on a national level, and probably to some degree we don't. But we do have a lot of control at the state level, but it means that we got to pay attention. Either get involved in the issue or, as you say, run for office. Yeah, I don't know if you experience this, but if I get told by one more Democratic friend that I have to pick up the phone and call Joe Manchin, I'm going to pull my hair out because I'm not going to reach Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin's not going to take your call. No, an intern Unless is Unless you move. <laughs> Even then, an intern is going to pick up and uh, they'll be very polite and probably listen to me for five minutes. And it's not going to change the course of Joe Manchin's vote on Build Back Better or voting rights or the filibuster or anything else. But if you pick up the phone and you call your state senator, you're going to get me on my cell phone, right? And you you're... answered your emails at night. Were you typical? Uh, oh, yeah. We we all sp sit there long nights in the in the legislative session. You know, we pull a lot of all-nighters. And how do we pass the time? We're responding to constituents. And many legislators give out their cell phone numbers. And let me say that not enough people actually take us up on this. So if 10 people pick up the phone and call That's me about an issue, I'm like, oh, my God. I really got to focus wow. on this. This is important. And that's um, a good message, Will. I mean, it for anybody in the country. Yeah, wherever you are, whether you're in Connecticut or elsewhere, get to know the folks who are your voice at the state capitol because they'll be probably excited to hear from you. And you can actually impact what they do day to day if you get a handful of your friends to make that call as well. Uh, so now talking about the other youngsters, <laughs> as uh, I would say, uh, you make, a, you make a point in the book, which was interesting and striking to me, that uh, Gen Z, who we're going to define in a minute, 81% of Gen Z people believe they have the power to institute change. Now, this is a pretty beaten up group. Isn't when, that when, were, when were Gen Z's born? So Gen Z is generally 1996 or after. The easiest so you're way to... born in 96. I was so born you're in 96. A Gen Z. Yeah, I'm kind of right on the edge, to be honest. But I identify. You're almost a millennial. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. I identify more with Gen Z because of the defining characteristic of that generation is optimism. And I, I, I'm not sure exactly how that's the case, right? This is a group of folks that grew up during the forever wars of the Bush era. Uh, experienced school shooter drills, um, frankly, spent a lot of their formative years inside because of the worst because a virus caused the worst recession since the Great Depression. And we watched a reality TV star rise to the Oval Office. Yet the takeaway of this generation is not to to throw up our hands, but instead to roll up our sleeves. Right. So you think do you think that that we'll see more of them running? In other words, the age gap will be bigger than it might historically be. That the millennials, what are the Gen <coughs> Xs? How old are they? Gen X. Oh, I should know this. They're like in their 40s, right? right? Gen, Gen X is a little bit older. But, but generally, what I think pundits get wrong when they talk about young voters, quote unquote, is um, – they group them together. And millennials are very different from Gen Z. Yeah. 19% of millennials believe that, generally speaking, people can be trusted. 
Like that is a very cynical age group. Oy, less than bomb. one in five, right? Less than one in five believe that people can be trusted. Millennials don't don't show up to vote uh, at at very high rates. But Gen Z, oh my gosh, they race to the ballot as soon as they become eligible voters. Uh, we did saw, they vote in twenty twenty? Yeah, they voted fifty five percent turnout, eighteen to twenty nine year olds in twenty twenty. That's ten points higher than the last presidential election. Holy cow! And it's not just that that uh, Gen Z votes, but they're active, right? We saw them when when Donald Trump mocked Greta Thunberg for uh, anger management issues, he called it. The rest of us followed her lead, right? We went on strike for climate justice. Uh, we followed the lead of people like Emma Gonzalez, who walked out of school and demanded stronger gun laws. I think that we're going to start to see a lot more Generation Z um, activism. And I hope that that activism is channeled into actually running for office. So now I want to bring up something that surprised me because I read a galley of the books, which is a book that comes out before the printed book. And the printed book came out last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, just last week. Yeah. So when I read, so I was surprised to, I live here in Connecticut. So I was surprised to see the news that you decided not to run. So I'm, I'm curious, what does that say about the job of being a state legislature? state legislator. Um, obviously, why'd you do it? And do you think your constituents feel betrayed? Does that make them think, oh, you give a young person and they like do it and then they think, well, I got to go on and do something else like a grown up job. <laughs> so how, how do you what, what's been you've gotten a lot of coverage about deciding not to run and you're going to go to law school. Um, I hope my constituents don't feel betrayed. I We'll say this. I ran for office because I thought that it was time for a change. I think the government works best when new voices and different perspectives get to walk into the committee room or the caucus room or the Senate floor. Um, and the person who's going to come after me, they're going to bring different ideas. They'll probably bring a whole lot of better ideas. And Or it might be Tony Boucher. <laughs> it might be. I don't know. That would, that would be different. Uh, but I'll just say that I think the change is, is actually good. So when we elect people for two-year terms, I'm not sure that our expectations should always go far beyond that. Um, we, I think, tend to believe that the people who happen to sit in seats, whether it's in the state senate or the House of Representatives or the Board of Ed or the presidency, that those seats belong to them. And the mm -hmm. seats belong to the people who decide to show up on election day. So I, I have been so honored to serve this community for uh, two terms. I'm so grateful. Oh, that yeah. You got reelected. We forgot to tell everybody. Yeah. I, I fought really hard for reelection in 2020. Was so grateful that they and gave you me. And you won by a huge margin. Right? Yeah. Our, we, the first time around, we barely won. And the second time around, we uh, we had a huge turnout and, and um, a, a much wider margin. And I, I feel so honored that they gave me this opportunity. But I also just fundamentally believe that turnover is going to be a good and healthy thing for Connecticut, for Fairfield County and, and for the country. Well, I'm going to watch that race because I'm curious about. Me too, by the way. You and I will watch it together. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I live in New Haven, not Westport, so I won't be uh, voting. But I want to. I want to wrap up by asking you, um, and they sort of go together. About what did you learn from what is now three years of being in office? Um, and four years, including running, and you've got one more year in office. What did you learn, and what do you want a reader uh, to take away uh, from the book? Well, I hope that, th that a reader walks away from this book feeling optimistic about politics. You mm -hmm. asked a question that I didn't fully answer earlier, which is, does the system work? And I, I want to be very direct and say, yeah, my takeaway is that the system actually does work. There's a lot wrong with politics. Turn on cable news for 30 seconds and you'll feel frustrated by the state of our political discourse. But there's also that's a lot right with politics. And some of that work goes unnoticed. It doesn't make the headlines. The fact that 80% of our bills are bipartisan in the legislature in, here in Connecticut. And yeah. a lot of that bipartisanship happens across the country at the state level. Um, and it's still possible for underdog candidates to win. And it's still possible for you to pick up the phone and call your state senator and give them an idea and to see that idea become law with it just six months later. So for all of the pessimism that we're all maybe feeling these days about 
the direction of our politics. I'm walking out of the state capitol feeling way more optimistic than I was when I came in. The system really does work. And I hope that the takeaway from this book is maybe, hey, I could do that. I'm, you know, Will's nothing special. I could run for office too. Or, hey, I know somebody in my community who is a real activist and likes to post on Instagram about their political beliefs, and maybe they should actually run for office. Maybe I'll give this book to them. Or maybe just, you know, more simply, I can't afford right now to run for office. I don't have the time, the financial um, leeway to do so. But I'm going to start to pay a lot more attention to what's happening at the state capitol. Those are some takeaways I hope people have. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. You know, the other thing that's in the book that um, I thought was fun to read about, you know, there were issues that you got involved in, um, like, you know, I learned about how the price of prison phone calls affects the high recidivism rates here Isn't in that Connecticut. Crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you know, your your take on student loan reform, free community college, paid leave. Um, you know, in watching, I know the sausage industry objected to saying you're watching <laughs> the sausage being made, but they're not going to, I don't care what the sausage industry thinks of me. <laughs> um, but uh, I grew up kosher. <laughs> I definitely don't care. Um but there's that in there. But I did come away, Will, feeling a little. I mean, I I skew optimistic, but I think you did a good job of showing that pieces of it can work. Um, so I, you know, good job on that. And I I do hope, Will, that when you finish law school, you're going to go to law school in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do hope you go back to politics. I hope that this was merely a, this is just an interlude. Because uh, I love that. I've been using the word intermission, but interlude works too. I would love to come back to politics. I think I found what I love doing. So if I can figure out how to do, how to do that, I'll be back. Yeah. Well, we've been talking with uh, Will Haskell, uh, the Senator Will Haskell, um, the author of 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker. Who knows? We might see more 22-Year-Olds uh, running for office. I, I guess you can't be president until you're 35, right? Uh, I, I, that's true. But we should. I, I hope that we will see a lot more 22-Year-Old Lawmakers. Um, Good. I could have used some company up there. So yeah, Thank you great. for having me. Thank you so there. much, Will. Thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, please tell all your friends about it. You can uh, find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.